and welcome to AI Ethics in Radiology, Emory University's Center for Ethics podcast on the application of artificial intelligence in radiology and in healthcare. My name is John Banger. I'm a professor at the Center for Ethics at Emory University, and my guest for this podcast is Dr. Yvonne Louie. Dr. Louie is a professor of radiology and vice chair of research at NYU's Grossman School of Medicine and NYU Langone Health. Dr. Louie, your specialty is neuroradiology, and you're doing some important work in traumatic brain injury among retired NFL players. So why don't we begin with your telling us about that? Sure. It's a pleasure to join you. And, uh, you know, my, my primary research is in traumatic brain injury, imaging of traumatic brain injury. And we have studied actually primarily patients who have a single concussive episode, what we call civilian uh, concussion. Uh, and we have done some work with, uh, with our colleagues in psychiatry, in, um, in veterans, looking at traumatic brain injury, blast injury. Mm. We've also done some work using a publicly available data set looking at athletes, um, collegiate athletes mm -hmm. who are at risk for multiple head traumas. And I guess in, in your question, the chronic traumatic encephalopathy group, the retired NFL players, that was a really big study that was out of Boston University, um, which we, we were um, like a, a recruiting site for um, out, of, out of many sites. So we did participate in that and I'm the imaging lead there. Um, but that is a study that is mainly comes out of Boston University. So, so tell me about the study itself. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in what clinically you're finding out or what you want to find out. Well, for, so I'm going to speak about what I know most. So in terms of um, single concussive episodes, we just don't even know enough about concussion, um, how it, you know, what happens to the brain exactly. Uh, it's very difficult to study because we can't see what happens and we can't biopsy people for obvious reasons. And yet a significant fraction are continue to be symptomatic or have a long recovery course. Um, and, and so it's, it's just difficult. Imaging is like one of the only windows into concussion. So that's why it's been fun uh, and challenging to study, to use, we've used advanced MR techniques to study um, concussion. And, uh, you know, we've looked at, we've done a number of things. We've looked at tissue microstructure in, uh, in the brain using advanced diffusion MRI um, to look for injuries in uh, injured people. And it used to be thought that like people are not injured at all. You just knocked your head a little bit, get up and go back out there and play Indeed. or you know, whatever, get yeah. over yourself. Uh, and yet people, some people would continue to be symptomatic and they would have uh, symptoms and post-concussive syndrome. Um, 
and all our conventional imaging was like normal. So we would just, as mm. a clinical radiologist, I sit here and I read head trauma cases right. and, you know, you dictate and you say, oh, normal head CT or normal brain MRI. And yet the brain is not, not clearly not normal. So we've been developing MRI, new MRI techniques to try to look at the brain to see injury. And in fact, I think there's a big body of work that's not ours alone, but that pretty much shows that at least when you look at group analyses, there are definitely changes to the brain that occur after concussion. Indeed. So uh, back in, in my rehabilitation days, uh, I, for 17 years, I worked in the, uh, the rehab hospital at Emory. Uh, and I learned enough about traumatic brain injury, not among football players, but this is motor vehicle accidents. I mean, this is neurological rehabilitation uh, that we're talking about. So I, I, I learned enough about them to be dangerous. And, and what, I, uh, what I did learn was when that concussion occurs, Oftentimes, the, uh, the, 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 the contents of the neuron are damaged, and, and like the, uh, especially the axon, um, uh, it, 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 it spills out. It essentially hemorrhages or, or, or it rips, and that uh, the, uh, the, the, the microchemicals inside the neuron then can be toxic to other neurons in and around that, uh, in and around that environment. Um, I don't know if I got that entirely right, but I think I kind of got it right. Is that is that still a, uh, uh, a, a, a an acceptable kind of clinical understanding of some of the problems that traumatic brain injury uh, presents us with? Yeah, so certainly in traumatic brain injury, there is strain and stress forces mm -hmm. on the white matter, kind of twisting the axons, as you say, uh, that connect different parts of the brain. Um, people have used biomechanical models to model those strain forces, and they're not insignificant. Mm -hmm. um, I think in more serious uh, levels, like severity of tra traumatic brain injury, we do see hemorrhaging, um, what they call diffuse axonal injury or traumatic axonal injury, um, which can look like little micro hemorrhages. And we've gotten more sensitive at detecting those, but that's um, often a more like severe type injury. Mm -hmm. And then clearly when you have injuries, I think the thinking is that inflammatory cascades get mm -hmm. triggered as you, you know, sort of suggested, and this adds to the ongoing inflammation and perhaps ongoing problems that people suffer yeah. from. So I was interested in you talking about the a single concussive episode because I, I, I was always under the impression that the, the big problem with whether they're college players or, or professional uh, uh, players are these these micro concussions and that they they sustain hundreds and hundreds of them through the course of a uh, of a career. How, how do those figure in? I think both are of interest and both are being studied, basically. Um, and what you mentioned is is quite interesting. We did do a recent study where um, where we looked at collegiate football players and the tissue microstructure, and these were not concussed subjects. So mm -hmm. these were subjects who are at risk or exposed to what's called repeated head impacts. 
Mm -hmm. right? Some of them, they're all subconcussive, actually, these mm -hmm. impacts. Mm -hmm. um, and, and interestingly enough, you do see structural changes or differences between a uh, con contact sport group, a football uh, cohort, compared with non-contact sport collegiate athletes. So those differences are not believed to be differences due to physiology or fitness or, mm -hmm. you know, um, how, how much you're working out or, or anything like that, but they are thought to relate to exposure to repeated head impacts. So that was, and it's very diffuse across large swaths of the brain, these differences are present. Um, and actually it was quite, I don't know, shocking to me that it was so clearly different. Um, I mean, it's not, it's not difficult. And this goes to another paper actually that's in, that's uh, under review currently, which uh, uses some machine learning, which I know you're also interested in talking to me about, but it's not that interesting a task to say like, oh, can you tell who is a football player and who's a rower, for example, right? Or a golfer, I mean, right? Yeah, exactly. If you, if you looked at, if you just look at them, you could probably tell the difference, right? Um, so, so why is that an interesting research question? It's not, except that if a, if you can train a machine learning model or something to actually see the, you know, be able to parse these two groups well, that suggests that there are actually structural differences, right, um, in between the brains of these two different groups. And I think it's interesting because um, we can try to identify the features that are, you know, that the model is using to parse these two groups. So what right. are those features and are, you know, and that can help us inform the mechanism of injury and try to understand the, you know, the physiology behind this process better. And that's really where your research is to understand the physiology, the mechanism of injury. We're not going to get into the larger question of should we ban football or or whatever, which is an enormous, I think, uh, social issue. I, I, I must share with you a confidence. I love to watch professional football on Sunday afternoons, like, I guess like so many gazillion Americans. And I marvel at how beautifully professional football is suited for our TV screens. I mean, it's just it's just a natural. But I will tell you, for having been in, in rehabilitation hospital for 20 years of my life, every time I see those players collide helmet to helmet, I just I just sort of wince. Uh, but then I keep on watching. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 really a, a kind of an extraordinary, I think, dilemma or tension uh, that 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 we're in in the United States. I have a hunch that uh, you would not. Uh, uh, encourage your children to uh, to play football. Uh, I guess your hunches are right. I don't think I would advocate for um, for no no contact sports. I mean, especially in this society mm -hmm. where we do so much sitting around and you know getting mm -hmm. youth, keeping youth active, um, and sports are such 
a positive and brings such a positive aspect to society and health. Um, however, however. I, yeah, you're right. I don't think my sons will be playing uh, competitive football. I think there are probably smart ways of, I mean, one thing is if we can understand the, you know, the impact of, no pun intended, of exposure to uh, head impacts, to concussion itself, to repeated concussion. If we can detect injuries, mm -hmm. we can, you know, do better probably at preventing them and treating them and, um, you know, and prognosticating on who is at risk for there you go I, that's an interesting one and and that would be really wonderful wouldn't it of course we're talking about a 50-year a study i would imagine in which maybe you would use ai to identify players who are going to be pretty impervious to uh, to concussions i mean later on and you know in their in their lives uh versus uh, players who are uh uh what very susceptible to uh, to concussions and and for whom uh, goodness gracious they're they're not going to know their names when they're 65 years old so uh, yeah so perhaps ai might might help us out uh, with, with yeah i mean traumatic brain injury has been known for a long time to be a risk factor for neurodegenerative diseases sure um, alzheimer's uh, i mean uh, yeah. Gosh, pugilist fighters, right? The the the, the punch drunk uh, syndrome and all that. Okay, thank you for that. Let's 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 change gears. Uh, you are the uh, associate chair for AI uh, at in your department, and I am just dying to know uh, what what is that like? I mean, what 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 are your job responsibilities? What what do you do in that uh, in that role? Because my understanding is that we still have not imported AI on a, a, a wide scale uh, in our hospitals for clinical treatment modalities. So but I'm, I'm always anxious to talk to folks like you who are on the cutting edge of this. So tell us, uh, as the associate chair for AI at NYU's Grossman Medical Center, uh, I beg your pardon, the, the Grossman School of Medicine, but uh, what's going on there? Well, what is it that I actually do? That's a great question. I, um, it's an inaugural position. So I got to invent what I do, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, that's always nice. And, uh, and it, you know, it's been challenging as well, because um, if you, uh, you know, if you're going into a position where someone's leaving and you knew exactly what they did, you at least have a framework for what right. you should be doing, right? Or what they, what you want to do better than so that. You person. are the trailblazer. But uh, yeah, this was brand new right. and it's a program growing for our specific, you know, strategic area for our department. Uh, which has been super exciting. So um, basically I have a very forward thinking chair who recognized early that um, machine learning will have some kind of role in imaging going forward, medical imaging. And he, um, and he wanted to be, he wanted our department to be at the bleeding edge. Sure. Of so um so that's so we've been trying to grow a program um in ai 
it is mostly research because it's so brand new. Yes. Um, but we have also dabbled, you know, as an academic medical center, there's kind of this tripartite mission. People talk about uh, clinical work, education, and research. Right. And so we've been very heavy on the research side. However, um, we have started a whole educational programming for our residency which was one of the first like formal um curricula That's for residents and um and we're hosting interestingly for you maybe we're hosting a we a, it's a biannual I always get that mixed up it's biannual and we co-host it with Stanford um university a about medical ethics mm -hmm. and um data science oh wow specifically in imaging it's called bold air so it's what does it stand for bioethics um legal uh data science and ai and radiology or something like uh -huh. that uh -huh. but um so so on the educational side and then on the clinical side which is your question you know what yeah really i um in our department uh there we are moving forward as we speak with an implementation of a um a couple of things but they're also their irb approved research studies but they're very broad so that they're kind of being rolled out across across uh, the whole department um, one thing that we've worked on is a project called Fast MRI. It was a mm -hmm. collaboration with Facebook AI research to make MRIs faster because they're very slow. I don't know if you've ever had one, but no. Take, well, um, I mean, you mean like the forty minutes inside that? Inside yeah, the, yeah, yeah. So patients, especially, I mean, it's not comfortable in there. Right start to move and then the image quality degrades or some people just give up and they need to stop. <laughs> um, so, so it's always been a challenge for MRI compared with other imaging modalities like X-ray and CT are very, very fast. Um, and, uh, but MRI is really incomparable in terms of tissue contrast that you can get. And so, uh, so it's necessary, but it's still like an order of magnitude slower than other imaging modalities. Let, let, let me ask you a really practical question, though. From, from, from where you sit, is it too early to predict where the first AI models are going to uh, emerge in, in, in clinical care? It, 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 yeah. So, so that's the thing. They are. They're there already. Okay. How, how, how. For example, these models, which is it's hard to wrap your head around exactly because as a clinical as a patient, you don't like see this, but these models are going into production GE Siemens Philips. You know, okay, you name it, um, and they're coming out in their state of the art machines going forward. They're already being incorporated into. And are they coming to? Excuse me. Are they coming to you now and saying these are our models? We want you to try them out at NYU. Or you? No, they're coming them? out as product. Yeah. They're coming out as product. So anyone, I mean, we have ongoing studies 
sure. Mm -hmm. But these products, they're coming out as product. And so anyone buying the machines is going to have state-of-the-art deep learning based MR reconstruction and anybody going to any imaging site with any of these new machines is going to have access, you know, is going to be imaged, many are, depending on the protocol or whatever, are going to be imaged using a deep learning based image Okay, so so what you're saying then is um, that the big worry of the last couple of years, which is the generalizability uh, of these models, that we're we've reached a stage where these models are pretty accurate, they're reliable. We can use them at your facility at Stanford at uh, Mass General. Uh, they 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 have reached a, an acceptable level of of generalizability and accuracy. That's what you're saying. Is that right? Well, I I mean I liked how you put it. Like, is that fact or fiction? Right. <laughs> I think. Um, I think oh, you know it's terrible. I think it depends, uh -huh. right? Because also what people think of as AI in medical imaging is very narrow minded. People think about, is it cancer or is it not? Find right. the nodule, mm -hmm. you know, find the tumor, make the diagnosis or, or something, right? There, I think going back to two questions, sorry, I'm slow, but you know, where are the applications gonna be first? they are already and the first applications are in things that are sort of hard to explain right like mr reconstruction which uh -huh. i started to go down a rabbit hole that is yeah that is hard to uh, i haven't come across that in all the all the papers that i've that i've read so and and things like tools right tools that help radiologists mm -hmm. so all of this is positive tools that help you segment things or mm -hmm. tools that help you um you know, visualize a stenosis of a vessel. How something. about prioritizing? Do, are, are you using those those tools that, for example, if you're reading a routine, a, a batch of routine mammograms, uh, the, 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 the model will say, I'm 99.99999% confident that these are all true negatives. You don't even have to look at these. Uh, but but this 60% here, you should look at these because these are problematic. Are, are you seeing that kind of uh, uh, utilization? Okay, so that's super common among FDA approved products mm -hmm. because triage, triage tools mm -hmm. are um, under a whole lot less scrutiny by the FDA than diagnose, tools for diagnosis. And uh, as a result, a lot of vendors will try to push their thing for diagnosis through a pathway that is, you know, supposedly prioritization tool, uh, and then their thing gets stamped like on in the fine print. It says, "Oh, this is not for diagnosis," but it's ridiculous because it's a tool. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So, so I think it's it's they're in some ways from a scientific point of view they're one and the same from a 
FDA point of view, they are clearly ranked separate or treated differently, and one is way easier than the other. And so if you're a startup, if you're a company, whatever, everybody is going for the easy thing. Um, but in reality, they're tools for diagnosis. So it's like a big joke where the fine print says, this is not used for diagnosis. And, you know, it's supposed to detect hemorrhage. Yeah, gosh, there are some interesting ethical, but especially legal uh, twists in, in that. I, I'm especially thinking of something like, quote unquote, an off-label use uh, of, a, uh, of an imaging uh, technology. So, you know, it's FDA approved for this, but everybody really uses it. Well, they use it for that, but they also use it for this uh, as well, because it's, it's such a... Uh, uh, Oh, congruent use of the, uh, you know, of, of, of the model. Yeah, I mean, I guess in reality, they're saying the radiologist doesn't replace the radiologist. Radiologist has to look at the images, make their decision, whatever. Um, but like true prioritization, is it really necessary? I mean, maybe in some practices where you have to, I don't know. I mean, it, from my perspective, it's, doesn't add a lot usually. These days, people have very fast turnaround for like emergency room cases, inpatient cases. So what about maybe like an outpatient case that has something really acute on it? It's very, very infrequent that there are you know, um, hemorrhages, like an yeah. intracranial hemorrhage in, in an outpatient who is asymptomatic i mean it just so are you saying then that 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 prioritization thing is 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 maybe not all that helpful not all that it's cracked up to be well i think uh, yes Pro yeah i mean i i mean i uh -huh. think that the reason why vendors are going that route is more from a like uh i don't know fda approval sure reason not a clinical reason and that's one of the problems right they're not driven by this is an important clinical problem to solve prioritization we don't you know that's not like the biggest problem that radiologists have so maybe there's a case of like pe or so i mean i guess you can imagine it but it's not like it's interesting it's kind of backwards right it's not like if you take the most pressing problem that patients or yeah, uh -huh. clinicians yeah. or uh -huh. radiologists have and try to solve it. It's like you have some tool that does this thing. It's kind of like the low-hanging fruit, isn't yes. it? Yes, yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. low-hanging fruit and it's easy to push through the FDA. So we did it and now we want to sell it to you. Mm -hmm. And you're not really solving my most pressing problem. Is mm -hmm. there one patient who maybe it could satisfy or something i don't know maybe but then yeah. you know. i must tell you though i i saw a paper by uh, a group from the netherlands in which they use their model on routine screen screening mammograms and uh, uh it, it was just tested in their own facility so the generalizability of the model is still in doubt nevertheless what they what they said was the model performed so well in terms of segregating, you know, these are the mammograms that 
you don't have to look at versus these are the ones that uh, that you that you should look at. Their point was, wow, this is going to be an enormous time saver on radiologists, especially if we get to the uh, point where this model is so good that it's it's just as good as its accuracy is just as good as Dr. Louis. Um, just just as you know, just as good. Um, and if that day, uh, and maybe I'll ask you, do, do you think that day will be coming in five years, 10 years, 20 years from now? But if that day does arrive, uh, really, uh, that should be a tremendous efficiency um, what, uh, benefit for, uh, for, for, for the field of radiology. Yeah, sure. So I do think that uh, they may have surpassed me already. Like that. <laughs> You are a humble person. <laughs> no, well, I'm not a breast imager, so I specialize in uh, uh, yeah. logic imaging, so I wouldn't trust myself with a mammogram. However, um, I, yeah, I think that uh, we have experience with a breast imaging model, and I think that there is definitely a role we hope that uh, um, a you know an AI model would have in uh, in helping radiologists interpret mammograms, right? That's what you're mm -hmm. talking about, and that's what everybody focuses on, like the interpretation and right. the diagnosis. Exactly. Exactly. Is it cancer or is it not? So I I do think AI will have a role, and there are some exceptionally good models. I mean, one of some of the really leading work is done by one of our researchers, a guy named Christoph Garris. And, um, and so we, the thing is that people don't know where it's most clinically useful, right? And so that's, we're trying to do research to discover that right now. And what we believe is that um, it could help us even out what's called recall rate, right? So recall rate is how often patients with screening mammograms have to get called back mm -hmm. for additional imaging. Mm -hmm. And so you, it's one of those things where you don't want it too low and you don't want it too high, right? Because if it's too low, then you run the risk of missing cancer and if it's too high, you are doing unnecessary. Right, it's gonna be a great right. imposition on your time. Yeah, and so <clears throat> there are national benchmarks for what are you know, appropriate recall rates. And uh, there's a wide variety of recall rate among clinicians, among radiologists, and also it matters like what their practice is like sometimes, I'm sorry. Um, sometimes if you are at a big tertiary care center, you may have, you know, um, referrals and things that, I don't know, maybe your screening population is different from others, right? So maybe you could argue that some of the um, recall rates should be, you know, could be different. But I think that, so, so that's our thought that it could help us even out variance in recall rate. Mm -hmm. And I think the research has to be done to actually show that that's the case. Research mm -hmm. has to be done to show that, like you said, it affects efficiency. Maybe I read faster. Maybe I am 
uh, uh, feel a boost in confidence if I see the little green sticker for the, from the AI model or what, whatever. Um, but nobody's actually sh done that work, right? Um, the other thing is that some people say, well, there's also research to show that if you don't prioritize the things that you don't prioritize, people could take longer at, right? And um, so let's say you say, oh, all of these we think are, you know, normal, but these, we, the model wasn't, uh, you know, uh, wasn't certain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now you're left with looking at the ones that the model wasn't certain on, but a huge number of those, I mean, this is screening population, right? So in thousand mammograms, you should detect only a few cancers. Yeah, that's one of the problems, isn't it? Right. And so even among the ones that the model wasn't sure, most of those vast majority of those are negative. Yeah, yeah. Negative. yeah. And so uh, the concern is that if you don't tag it with the the model was like uncertain, then it could like increase recall rate or increase the time or increase people's anxiety over the those other ones that really are negative that didn't get tagged. So all of that kind of thing is not going to be known until people use it in indeed like, indeed in yeah so trial and error uh, experimentation making mistakes seeing how we could ramp it up uh, uh, better well th this has been marvelous i want to ask you one more question though because you 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 said something intriguing when you talked about the private sector. And as an ethics guy, I'm always interested in these conversations between the private sector and clinicians like you. And, uh, you know, because oftentimes there are different interests involved. And that's what we were talking about when we talked about the low hanging fruit. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, I understood you to say that oftentimes the private sector is not really responding to the needs of clinicians um, in, in, in the models that they turn out. So maybe we could end our, our interview with this. If you would speak to the, to the private sector in terms of what you perceive clinicians really need and what, how they would love the private sector, the kind of research and R&D that the private sector should be doing, what would it, what would it be? Well, it's an interesting question. I think it's hard to, how would I summarize that in, in like one ask? I mean, I think we love partnering in some ways with people who have, who come at it from different perspectives. We have collaborations with industry, with tech, um, and we also have members of our own academic community who are who have background in startups. Um, so I think it's very useful um, to like have all of those perspectives mm. and be able to move forward, right? But you obviously need clinical expertise on your team to inform whether what you do is at all you know, interesting or useful. Yeah. So I think that um, right now there's a lot of excitement. There are a lot of papers, but, you know, many are, I mean, they're not useless either. I think from a technical perspective, um, from a 
fundamental research perspective. It's all important to move the field, not all maybe, but much of it is important to move the field forward. Um, but ultimately the impact comes from uh, partnering, I think, between clinical, you know, having the clinical expertise, understand, and this has been true, this is not AI, this is true for right. translational research, right. Right. right? Partnering between people, the clinical needs and the technical know-how to, to solve the problems. Right, and I think it will be very, very interesting in the years uh, uh, to come how the FDA will look at regulating uh, these uh, these models, because I, I think we're going to see a lot of tension, I think, in the United States uh, among uh, the private sector that does not really want to be regulated. Uh, they want to go off and do their own things, and they talk about the, uh, the high cost of regulation and the fact that regulation stifles innovation and all that kind of stuff, versus, you know, concerns from the public that uh, that says, well, these 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 models can do a lot of harm uh, if they're not uh, if they're not regulated well. Yeah, it's it's also a two-edged sword. The medical field is highly regulated, and you know, does does that stifle some innovation? Um, it, it may. Yeah. But like you said there are safety concerns, there are ethical concerns. Um, so it, that's been challenging too, right? Um, our meetings uh, for implementation of the breast model I mentioned have involved folks like yourself, bioethicists, uh, IRB compliance, legal. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, clinical faculty, mm -hmm. machine learning scientists. So we're all in the room together. And that's what makes my job fun. Right, but it's also a challenge, uh, and and it's areas that I'm not an expert in, like the legal person. Thank God she. <laughs> but it, it says something though about how this AI is like an octopus. I mean, it's just all over the place. Its tentacles are in all of these dimensions of uh, of of human life, and uh, uh, you know when you were talking earlier about. Uh, uh, your role with students and and faculty. I, I think that this introducing AI to our residents and our medical students, who oftentimes know more about AI than their professors do, yeah. you know, I think that that's a real front burner issue uh, for us in medical schools and medical medical training. We, we really, I think, need to make a very concerted, uh, energetic effort, uh, because this is where our future physicians this is where they're going to be practicing for the 30, 40, 50 years of their career. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Dr. Louis, thank you so much. This was a great interview. I really enjoyed talking to you. Best of good fortune to you. Thank you, John. Thanks again to Dr. Yvonne Louis for her insights on developing AI research at NYU. Thanks also to Sam Kim, who did the audio production of this podcast, and to the staff at Emory University's Center for Ethics, who maintain the podcast webpage. We also thank the Advanced Radiology Services Foundation and Emory University's Department of Radiology and Imaging Sciences for their financial support. And in case you're wondering, that's me at the piano. Please follow the projects and activities of Emory Center for Ethics on Facebook and Twitter and at our website ethics.emory.edu. I'm John Banja. Join us for future podcasts. 
and thanks for listening.